welcome to the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast, where we are leading conversations about global innovation and entrepreneurship. In this series on women in technology, we shine a spotlight on the remarkable female entrepreneurs, business leaders, and engineers who are changing the world through industry and innovation. My name is Samantha Walravens. I'm an adjunct professor at Lehigh University, co-author of the book, Geek Girl Rising, and a writer for Forbes magazine, and I will be your host for the series. In this episode, we'll sit down with Bari Williams, Chief Operating Officer at Bandwagon Fan Club, a venue analytics platform. Bari is a former senior legal counsel at Facebook and is the author of the recently published book, Diversity in the Workplace. We also have with us Josie Haynes, the Senior Director of Engineering at Tile, the company that makes the Bluetooth tracker to help you find lost items. Josie also runs her company's diversity, equity, and inclusion group. Together, we will discuss the challenges and the opportunities that women today face as they navigate a still very male-dominated technology industry. As business leaders and Silicon Valley insiders, Bari and Josie will share their stories and the strategies that help them succeed and overcome barriers. So I want to take a moment as we start to reflect on the past year, 2020, a year that has made a lasting impact on all of us from the global COVID pandemic to the worldwide protests in the wake of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor killings to the storming of our nation's capital just last month. It's been a tumultuous time. And I wanna acknowledge and just thank you for your, your patience, your resilience and your courage in the face of everything that's gone on. And, and thank you for being here today. So Bari and Josie, in the wake of the protests last year, tech companies have denounced discrimination and systemic racism, and they have pledged to address equity issues I want to ask you both in your worlds, companies, and what you see in the tech world, what progress is being made, if any? Something that's interesting, I wouldn't say that it's necessarily a company that I currently work for. Um, well, Bandwagon is, is the CEO and founder is a, is a black male. So he's also very intimately entrenched in these issues. But other places that I've worked from other coworkers, you know, I've heard everything from now we've gotten Juneteenth as a holiday to they're doing donation matches for philanthropic efforts, uh, or we had the day off to protest. And all of these things are nice in theory. But for me, what I'm looking for is more tangible, long lasting action items, as opposed to things that you do as a one off. Also that come with a tax break. And you get the ability to say, look, we did something. It's like, well, that's great. But the other piece to that of your bigger tech companies like Facebook, Google, I don't recall if Amazon, Amazon did or not, but also Apple made these pledges to also do more business with small black business owners, which is great because I started the supplier diversity program at Facebook. So that makes me feel like my work wasn't in vain to some extent, but how long is that going to last, right? Like my thing is always, it's a, you know, cause du jour, but how long is that moment going to last? Like, is it going to be over after Black History Month is over? Maybe for some companies. Um, and for others, it's it's an issue around accountability. I think there's one thing that um, tech companies are, are really, you know, very, very heavy on is data. 
and they're data driven. So saying that you're going to have X percent of black employees within the next five years, well, who's actually holding you accountable for that? You're using your own internal metrics. Well, you could fudge those numbers. I would actually feel better if there was someone externally who was holding these companies accountable for seeing how much business you actually do with diverse suppliers, seeing how many employees that you actually recruit, seeing how many employees that you actually promote. That's the bigger picture that a lot of these companies are not thinking about is, yeah, you have them in there, but if they're stagnant, that isn't, that doesn't really help you either. Yeah. And, you know, to just add to that, I think what you've we have seen in the last year is at least companies are starting to talk about it. You know, like Bari said, you know, people are starting to get days off, things like that. And, but a lot of what's being done is like the easy, comfortable things to do. And I think a lot of people are talking about DEI concepts now, and that's great, but it's how do you turn those concepts into actual action where I'm still seeing challenges is really like the implementation of how do you actually reduce bias in your hiring process? How do you ensure that not just all of your leaders, but all of your recruiters are actually you know, behind this mission and actually believe in DEI? How, how do you actually ensure that your leaders are advocating for this? Um, especially with remote work, how are you making sure your leaders are advocating creating inclusive cultures, which means ensuring you do things like chit chat with your colleagues, right? You know, a lot of managers need to do a bunch more things that they didn't need to do before to actually create the community that we had when we were together. And so I at least see the things being talked about, but the needle's not actually moving in the right direction is actually the unfortunate problem. So there was this McKinsey study done end of last quarter that shows that women now are considering doing something that they wouldn't have considered doing pre-COVID and that's leaving the workforce. So a quarter of women are considering leaving or going to you know, part-time or a smaller role. And if you actually look at just moms, that goes to one third. And if we end up having, you know, senior women leaving companies, we already have a lack of senior women in leadership today. And if they all start leaving, where are the women who are trying to go up the ranks, where are their role models going to be? And so we could end up in a big diversity recession. And so it's great that things are being talked about, but we need to actually start taking action and really measuring inclusion and not just the diversity numbers as well. Yeah, well, there's been over the past, I don't know, five to 10 years, a push to increase diversity at technology companies to the point where they've created whole diversity and inclusion departments. So this is not something that we see in the, over the past year. It's been a while that the company's been working on this. The part that's troubling is that the numbers have not budged. So today, I was looking at the numbers today, there's still you know, less than 25% of tech jobs are held by women. Less than 2% of women-led startups get venture funding. That number has gone down over the past year due to COVID. It's gone up for male founders during COVID. Um, and then the statistic that bothers me the most is what you just mentioned, Josie, which is that 56% of women in tech leave their jobs mid-career, just when they're starting to take on those 
higher level management director level role. So why are these numbers stagnating and actually getting worse over time as all this DNI work is being done? Why? I think part of that answer is what Josie was talking about in terms of that seems to be around the same time when, you know, people are getting married and decide to have families. And well, one thing that you can probably say definitively is most of these companies are not, particularly if you're dealing with even, you know, midsize and smaller startups, they're not necessarily family friendly in the sense that your hours are not going to be nine to five. I, someone asked me last week if I had a nine to five job and I laughed heartily and because it's just not possible. (laughs) And, and that's one thing that even if you go through the interview process with tech companies, they're straight up and will tell you like, you need to be nimble. And, you know, we we're working really hard and we're building the plane while we fly it. That's, that's my favorite. Um, which essentially means that you're going to be working really, really hard for a long period of time. And I get the whole adage of, you know, work smarter, not harder, but sometimes you're doing both. And most of the time you're doing both at tech companies. And that isn't conducive to having small kids. And I can say that with, you know, vigor because during having to homeschool a kindergartner during COVID and work has been extremely challenging. So it's okay, I have to get her on Zoom, but then I need to be on Zoom. And then my son has to be on Zoom, but he's almost 11, so he can do his own. But having to sit there and like literally have to teach kindergarten and also redline contracts, <laughs> it's, that, it's not as easy as it sounds. And so I think what would, be, what would be great to keep women in the workforce, particularly in these types of companies, is we need to have a bit more flexibility around what are working hours? What does that look like? And I'm, I'm a fan of it shouldn't matter where I get it done or what time I get it done, as long as you get it when you need it. And I think that that goes for men too, because there are lots of hands-on dads. So I think that if, if companies kind of set up their structure that way, and I think actually, you know, if there's one good thing that COVID was able to do by keeping us all inside is it, it kind of blew the whole notion that remote work doesn't work, that, that blew that out of the water. So some of the other challenges is, you know, the numbers show that in the US, UK and Canada, the number of hours that people are working now is around 10 to 10 and a half of being online during the day compared to about eight hours pre-COVID. So most of us has pretty much just turned our commutes into working more hours. And tied directly to what Bari was saying, if you have kids, like that's even harder, right? To keep up with that when everybody is, you know, in the tech companies, everyone's juggling like three jobs, right? And, you know, we're totally understaffed and yeah, it is hard. And uh, along with that is just like, you end up unfortunately creating a culture where people end up bragging about like, oh, I'm, oh, I put in so many hours. I'm so busy, right? And then you don't end up creating a culture where people with families feel like, hey, we can talk about these things. I can take a break in the middle of the day. And so, you know, the companies that do remote work well really focus on asynchronous communication. And this really ties back to what Barbara was talking about with being able to work anywhere at any time. And you really need 
to understand that asynchronous communication piece to be successful in that. And I think that's really getting to that level is where a lot of companies are just struggling. And that goes to the next question I have, which is about inclusion. This is the idea that uh, greater gender and racial diversity on teams leads to better financial performance. So having diversity in your workforce, especially on executive teams, isn't just a nice thing to do. It's a good business practice, a good business decision. I wanted to ask you what, what, this, what inclusion means uh, in this context and what can companies do better? So inclusion to me really means creating a company and an environment where every employee can thrive and really feel comfortable to speak up and they're not going to be put down for it. And, you know, tied to that, 37% of people who leave tech do so because they were unfairly treated. And what's even more interesting, though, is 57% of tech leavers would have stayed if their workplace had addressed these concerns and created a more inclusive culture. But the challenge is diversity is much easier to measure than inclusion, right? You can measure gender, race, ethnicity, right? You can do a survey very easily. It's much harder to get into the inclusion piece because then you actually have to start asking people hard questions. And then it comes back to, oh, how do I address these things? But, you know, what is interesting is companies are starting to figure out how do we, you know, measure inclusion. And there are effective mechanisms that are starting to get out there. And it's just about our company is willing to adopt it and then actually look at what the survey data is saying and take action on it. I would say like diversity is being invited to the dance and inclusion is being asked to dance or you feel comfortable enough to ask someone else to dance. I think the, the bigger issue is like, you can have as many diverse individuals sitting, you know, in your company as you want. But the first step is, is this person in the meeting? If they're not in the meeting, let's go invite them. And then once they come into the meeting, are they comfortable giving their opinion? If they give their opinion and it's a good suggestion, now it's, are you going to implement the suggestion? So it's kind of a three-step process and you find that most times, most companies are just stopping at step one, which is find the diverse person and hire them. That isn't enough. It's not sufficient. And to Josie's point about if you know some of these harder issues are tackled, it would go a long way for retention. What I find particularly with my peers is that they'll do three years at Google, then they'll go and do three years at Facebook, then they'll go do two years at some other company, and then one year at another one, and then maybe three years at some other one. Because there is some some force or limit in which they kind of just kind of do this and hit a wall, and you there's nowhere for them to go, whether it's they're kind of landlocked in terms of career progression, or they're just subject to mistreatment or sometimes both. And I've seen it firsthand because having been head of legal, I've had to work with HR on many different matters. And it's interesting that for as many things that come across as microaggressions, those don't count. You could have a whole list of a hundred microaggressions that one individual just completely throws at you on a daily basis. It doesn't move the needle with HR. 
So they're not going to address that. They may do an investigation, but nine times out of 10, nothing will be found that requires disciplinary action because, oh, they just made a comment and they didn't know, or, oh, they were just asking a question and they thought it was all right. So it's, it, it's almost disheartening because it's like, unless someone is like yelling in your face an actual you know, slur of some kind, <laughs> you will not actually find any type of relief. Mm-hmm. Well, this, it's interesting at Google this past year, the CEO Sundar Pichai made a pledge as all the tech companies are doing to increase diversity by 30% by 2025. During the same time, this past spring and summer, the company fired two prominent African-American women, one of whom, ironically, April Curley, was a diversity recruiter who was responsible for hiring over 300 minority students into engineering roles at Google. And she tweeted that um, during her six years at Google, she was denied multiple promotions, She was yelled at and excluded from meetings. She was even harassed by one of her managers who asked her which of her teammates she would most likely want to sleep with. So when you see this kind of thing happening at Google, you got to figure it's happening everywhere. Are companies like Google just paying lip service to diversity, really not concerning themselves with real change? I worry that that's the case. So I did Apple for two years and I almost left the tech industry because of it, you know, and it's, I I can't say there's one thing that happened, right? But I call it death by a thousand paper cuts. You know, I would walk into meetings and I was the engineering manager and my program manager was a guy. Everyone assumed he was the engineer, like hands down. I even had somebody email me an apology letter at one point. Um, And, you know, I, I ran, I started Women at Siri because I saw a huge gap, which was women in Apple would do like presentations once a month, right? And that's all nice, but that's not actually having any hard conversations and allowing the women a place to actually speak about what really is going on. And I had wanted to start a mentoring program, but I was dissuaded because the VP of engineering at the time for Siri didn't believe in mentoring. And so until these bigger companies start really focusing on like, how do you create the inclusion? And it's not that every team in the companies is that way. Like I know within Apple, I know some like female leaders who are creating amazing cultures within their specific teams, but it's very much that sub team and that subculture. And so it's how do you actually end up making that throughout the whole company? Let's talk a little bit about the pitfalls or even the dangers of not having diverse perspectives when you're building technologies and companies. And I know that Josie, you have been in product development. Barry, you've overseen a lot of the legal side. One example that I always give is you know Google uh, back in 2015, the, the AI algorithm was tagging Black people as gorillas because the data that was being fed into the machine learning AI algorithm didn't include enough photos or images of Black people, partly because the engineers working on these algorithms were not Black. So this is an issue that's going to only grow as you know artificial intelligence, machine learning becomes more a part of our everyday world. Can you tell me about what you see as some of the pitfalls or dangers of not having diverse perspectives in on tech teams? I think what I've seen, particularly from a, a legal standpoint, I did congressional testimony this time last year when outside was open. <laughs> mm-hmm. 
And it was about bias and AI in financial services. What's interesting about that is the algorithms that will tell you, you know, if you're credit worthy and then what your interest rate should be is based on old data. And a lot of that data, particularly one congressman asked me about this because he was also African-American and it's based on redlining data. And so if you're using redlining data, which essentially was property law that said black people cannot live in certain neighborhoods or cannot purchase in, you know, these three parts of a city. And there also were restrictive covenants in deeds that said that you cannot sell your property to a black person or an Asian person. So if you are using that data as the base, the base layer of how you determine someone's credit worthiness, well, it's already skewed. Uh, you can also see that in the criminal justice system when you're using old data sets in terms of where crime happens it tends to be a self-fulfilling prophecy in some sorts because you are patrolling the same areas that you've already been told for decades this is where crime happens so you're going to tend to arrest more people in that area meanwhile you're completely ignoring all of the drug sales and drug use in piedmont it's interesting to see because that isn't reported, right? People aren't calling 911 for that. So using that kind of skewed information, you're gonna get skewed outcomes. And I think one of the panelists that was with me for that testimony, he, he so eloquently said garbage in, garbage out. Bad data begets bad end results. And also I would be mindful that algorithms are not inherently bad. And I don't think that the people who are programming them are inherently bad. Sometimes you just don't know what you don't know. But the problem with that is that you also have to be humble enough to ask, can somebody spot check this or can somebody help me beta test this before we ship it? The answer is not to just automatically ship it and, oh, if it's wrong, we'll fix it on the back end. That is not the answer. What about product development? Oh my gosh. So it impacts it in so many ways, right? And this might be being a little harsh to a lot of Silicon Valley, but like, I don't feel we really solve real problems, right? We solve a lot of convenience problems. Like how do I get my groceries? So I don't have to walk there myself. Like we're not solving things like racial inequity, things like the housing crisis, right? And to solve those real problems, we need diverse communities in the tech industry who've experienced these things. But, you know, just going back to even products I've worked on. So I worked on Siri on uh, the voice assistants and voice assistants are actually a lot less accurate with female voices or with people with accents. You wanna know why? Most voice assistant companies actually use their own employees to test um, their products as uh, because they don't wanna, you know, pre-release uh, their, their, what they're working on. And when the employee base is mostly going to be, you know, white men without accents, then that's who they're the most accurate for. Um, you know, related to what Bari was saying, there's so much uh, bias and the underlying data being used for machine learning, you know, how, how are we going to generate, you know, machine learning that is actually effective. Um, but, you know, also tied to that and um, to what Bari mentioned about people not actually thinking about it, um, you know, on Siri Sports, if you ask um, what are the top basketball teams, it actually defaults to men's sports. 
And the reason is there was actually a conversation. This is actually after I had left, but a, a female engineer who used to work for me actually shared the store with me. And so the sports team was all men and they believed, hey, most people just care about men's sports. If they want to know women's sports, they'd explicitly ask about women's sports. And the female engineer asked and was like, but you know, why? Like, why is that? And it ended up still shipping that way because they're like, well, the majority of our users are going to just care about men's sports. But, you know, what does that then say about women's sports? And you have to think about the long-term impacts that a couple engineers who weren't really thinking about that and the implications of their decision could really have on a lot of people, right? And I think that's part of the consequences is we're creating all of these amazing technologies, but the engineers building them don't always think about what are the long-term consequences of the actions that I take on all of these diverse communities. Yeah. One example that I also point to is the airbags that were developed by the big three car makers a number of years ago, and they were being built by mostly male engineers to fit the size and shape of a male body. So the crash test dummies that they used to test out the airbags were uh, being tested on male size, like five, eight, nine, ten weight of 170, 80, and it resulted in severe injuries for women and children when the airbags were deployed because they weren't designed for smaller body types. It's, it's a big problem when you're not having that perspective, that diverse perspective in these uh, development situations. So I want to ask both of you, we're, we're giving a very dire picture of, of technology, how awful it is, but you both, you both left technology for a, a bit, and then you both return. So what made you return and under what circumstances? So for me, it was realizing if I walked away, I was pretty much walking away from having the ability to impact the future. I can either come in and try to, you know, fight for change and keeping other women in tech with me, or I could just sit back. And I realized, you know, I did not want to become the statistic of the 56% of women leaving the tech industry. And so I said, hey, I'm going to come back under my own rules this time. And I'm going to work somewhere that does care about diversity, equity, and inclusion. And it's not just lip service. And so, you know, when I was looking to come back to tech, I actually spoke to the CEO of Tile. Uh, because at the time they were looking for a platform engineering director. And I said, like, I'd love to join, but I, I really care about this. Like, I want to start a mentoring program at Tile. Like, I want DEI to be something that we care about, we spend time on, we are, we're willing to invest in. And he said, you know, I told my wife I wanted to make Tile the best place for women to work in the valley. And I have two daughters and two sisters and no brothers and no sons. And I really want to see, you know, women thrive. And so, you know, that's really what kind of got me back in tech and inspired me to really be on a mission to be speaking about this over the last couple of years. Honestly, I left Facebook because I, I, I think my husband has a, a very good phrase for it. And I don't think it's his, but he's, he's the one that said it to me. Like people don't leave companies, they leave managers. Mm. And that was exactly my situation. I really enjoyed my job. I did not enjoy my manager. So when we talk about specific instances 
with microaggressions or people presuming things because you're a woman, like one example, my manager was a, a man and my two teammates were also men and they all went to a Warriors game one night. I wasn't even invited. And so when they came back the next day and talking about how great the game was and how nice the box was, and I'm like, well, what, wow, hey, what about? <laughs> and my manager said, oh, well, we just, you know, I just presume that, you know, you want to go home to your kids. Well, why would you presume that? I was a Warriors intern my senior year at Cal. So, and he knew that. So it, it was intentional. You decided that you didn't want me to go and you invented a reason as to just presume that I wanted to rush home to my children as if they don't have a fully functioning father who could take care of them while I go to a basketball game. So it was little things like that. He also asked me if I had gotten to college on affirmative action, just lots of inappropriate things where it just was, I have a hard time working with someone that I can't respect. And if I don't respect even the way that you speak to me, let alone the way that you're going to handle business practices, that is not going to be a situation that I would want to stay in. And I think the larger part for me that was kind of disheartening is I have a I have really good relationship with our general counsel and I had kind of given him a heads up on some of this and his solution was, okay, well, do you want to, do you want to switch teams? And I was like, no, 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 no. That's not, that's not the answer. Like the answer is not to move me. I'm not the problem. The, the answer is to address the actual problem, not to just avoid it by moving me. So I don't have to deal with him because all he'll do is do it to somebody else. So, well, and that's if he decided to hire another black woman. <laughs> um, and to, at, at least he can say he inherited me. He did not actually, um, he did not actually select any of, any of us on our team. He, he was hired in, but yeah, I just, that was the thing that was, you know, he, and, and he had great intentions and that's what he thought was the solution was like, oh, okay, well, in order to make you happy, I'll just, you can pick whatever team you want to go to. I was like, I don't want to do that. And that's what happened at Google with Susan Fowler a number of years ago. And she wrote that letter about her manager and what, what life inside, I'm sorry, not Google, Uber life, her crazy year at Uber was that she had been dealing with this manager who was awful and when she went to the next level, they said, oh, you can do, you can change teams. You can go to a different team. And she's like, that's, that's not the answer. So you left and, but now you're back in technology. So th is that the answer is you just find a better company with a better workplace culture? Yeah, I think, I think that's the answer. At least for me, I, I never left technology. And I think that that is still what you need to do is, you know, I was not, I was raised to not be a quitter. <laughs> so mm. I, I may not be in that particular situation, but I wasn't going to quit the entire industry, particularly where I am now. I'm very happy. And a lot of it is, it's going to be based on culture. I actually had this conversation with a woman who wanted me to help her in terms of, she works for a search firm and she was asking about diversity and recruitment. And I told her it's going to come down to two C's. It's going to be culture and compensation. So if the culture isn't right, even if you throw hundreds of thousands of dollars at people, they're not going to take it or they'll come stay for a little bit and leave. And so now the culture where I am is fantastic. And that's because it's set from the top down and the CEO, he is a 36 year old black man 
and he's a very hands-on dad to a four-year-old. So he totally gets my, my kindergarten Zoom trials. <laughs> Having that kind of understanding and culture also makes it easier for me to do my job because I'm not feeling this constant pressure of, okay, well, if I can't get to this meeting until 1130 and it actually starts at 1115, you understand why. And it's not some terrible strike on my record. Whereas I've colleagues at a, a past place of employment where the parents there are, are actually kind of afraid to homeschool. They're afraid and they have to kind of block out times around meetings and because management doesn't care that that that's also something that you have to do. How do you find which companies have inclusive, welcoming cultures? I would say ask a lot of questions. That's step one is ask a lot of questions. And also you should ask to speak candidly to someone on that team who may not be part of your interview panel. Um, and I say that because sometimes there's a reason they're not part of your interview panel. <laughs> so ask for, you know, the perspective of each person that would be on the team that you're working with. Ask for the perspective of the person that your team is works most closely with to understand what are their parameters and what are the things that they expect of you as their service provider or their teammate and their partner. Your team itself could be fantastic. It could be the people that you're servicing that are going to be the ones that give you more grief. Yeah. And, you know, to kind of add on to what Barry was saying around asking questions is remember there's two times you can really like sit down and ask for questions during the interview. But remember, once you've gotten an offer, the power's in your hands to make that decision. And so if at that point you want to ask somebody some tough questions about the culture, that's the time to do it. But why would a company say, no, you can't talk to somebody on the team? Like at that point, that would be a huge red flag for me, right? And so, you know, realize that at that point you do have a lot of power, right? Like if you've gotten the offer, like before you accept it, ask the questions you want. Remember it's a two-way street and you can do that. And then for the women on the call, there's actually this great community called Fairy God Boss, which is kind of like a glass door for women. And they actually have reviews that do actually talk about things that women might care about, like maternity leave and the culture. And I do find the reviews are a lot better than Glassdoor. Glassdoor mm -hmm. reviews tend to be not great. Um, it, it's, it, it's good to kind of see a theme, but it might not tell you the full idea of a team right and so um and also try to find other employees as you know if it's a bigger company or something try to find other employees you might be able to talk to and meet in your networks and in your communities and so you know one of the big things i tell people you know getting into the tech industry is networking is so crucial and important to get ahead in the tech industry and so yeah start start building your network early bari and josie i want to thank you so much for your time, for sharing your experience, your stories, your wisdom with us today. Thank you for joining the Lehigh at NASDAQ Center podcast. The Lehigh at NASDAQ Center is a collaboration between Lehigh University and the NASDAQ Entrepreneurial Center. Our mission is to educate, connect, and inspire the next generation of global entrepreneurial leaders. To learn more about us, go to nasdaqcenter.lehigh.edu and follow us on Instagram at, at Lehigh Nasdaq Center. If you enjoyed what you learned about diversity and technology from Bari and Josie today, 
Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast content. I'm excited for my conversation next week with Dawoon Kang, the co-founder and chief dating officer at Coffee Meets Bagel, an online dating app. And we will discuss the do's and don'ts of starting a company and lessons learned along the way. 